New Year is an, an important time for us. Um, it's January 4th, uh, and I know that almost all of you made New Year's resolutions. Uh, and on day one, you probably just completely ruined all of those resolutions. You didn't live up to them. And so uh, you've come today uh, to church. Maybe even come to church is one of those resolutions. But uh, you know intrinsically that there's a problem with you that there's something wrong, and the reason why we know that is because we all make these resolutions to be better. People who are okay don't need to be better, and so we don't need to make resolutions. It's a good time for us uh, as Christians and as the church to look out at the world and say, why do you need to continually make resolutions? The problem is because there's something deeply wrong with you. Um, And that wrongness uh, a lot of times just reveals itself as Um, Maybe just a slight tweak or something that needs to change just slightly in your behavior. If I can just stop doing this one thing or that thing, if I can just eat a little bit better, if I can just love a little bit more, if I can just work a little bit harder, everything is going to be okay. But again, it's January 4th and you've made your resolutions and you've probably broken almost all of them by this point. And so you recognize that that sickness uh, that's there, it's not just a matter of a small minor fix you need a complete overhaul. You need something that, that really it goes down deep into who we are because we have a deep spiritual sickness. Um, the problem with this sickness is that we forget about it. It's pernicious. And this is the thing that's pernicious about it. It disguises itself so much. The problem with this sickness that we have and the way that the Bible diagnoses our sickness is that we forget about it so often. It's easy for us to be for us to disguise our sickness and to forget about it and just act like everything is okay. Well, I think actually this text this morning reveals a little bit to us about this sickness and what the Bible says is really, truly wrong with us. And it comes in the most unusual way. It actually comes to us in the midst of war. It comes to us in the midst of a battle. And God shows us this in the way in which his people go about undertaking uh, this fighting in this battle. So this morning I want to read this text to us. It's 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, verse 1 through verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel... And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Um. Let me make a little comment here. I think verse 4 here is one of the funniest verses in all of the scriptures. It's funny in a very sad way, okay? And I'll explain that in a minute. So verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. 
As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become the slaves of the Hebrews if they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Great New Year's text, isn't it? (laughs) Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this text today. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we thank you for giving us this word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand it. That we would see the way that you work in the midst of a people who are in rebellion to you. Uh, Father, you are at work to bring about the healing of the sickness that we have, the sickness of our sin. Uh, You do that for Israel in the Old Testament. You do that for us today. Uh, But part of that sickness is that you are clouded from us, that our minds cannot see you clearly. And we need, by the work of the Spirit, to have that cloud lifted from us so that we can have a glimpse of you and your glory. Reveal yourself to us through your word today. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So today I want to look at this. We're going to look at uh, this again in three ways. This passage can be broken down very simply. Uh, The first part of it in uh, verses 1 through 5, we see Israel's strategy. How are they going to win the war? Israel's strategy. Secondly, uh, the second part in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see the Philistine strategy. How are they going to win this war? And then finally, we're going to look at the Lord's strategy in verses 11 through 12. So first of all, Israel's strategy, what are they going to do? It begins in a very simple way. Uh, We ended a couple weeks ago and we saw that Samuel had risen, uh, that the word of the Lord was given to him, and that Samuel began to minister God's word to his people. This had not happened for a very long time in Israel. And so something new was happening, something fresh, and perhaps bolstered by the word of the Lord coming to Israel from Samuel, they decide that now is a good time to go to war against their great enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines lived uh, to the west of the land of Israel at this time. They basically lived, uh, they were uh, a people who lived on the coastal regions of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean in Israel. Uh, they were a wicked and terrible people. Flash forward a few uh, years and you remember that David is the one that's fighting Goliath, the tall giant. Many of the people, the Philistines, were very, very tall. Um, and again, we know because they're tall that God hated them because, again, God doesn't like tall people. Just another example of that. But the Philistines were terrible, terrible, wicked people. They dogged the Israelites for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here at the very beginning of this passage, bolstered by the word of Samuel, they go to war against the Philistines saying, this time we're going to win. And what happens in verse 2? They go to war and 4,000 men die on the field of battle. It's an incredible loss. It's an incredible loss. So they learn from this. 
this is important for, for you to understand. Failure is not always a bad thing. Failure is oftentimes the very thing that God uses to teach us a lesson. It's good for us to fail. Football coaches will tell you that you learn more in a loss than you do by a victory. And so the SEC West has learned a lot this past bowl season, okay? Um, but you learn a lot from a, a failure, from a loss. 4,000 men died, and this is a great failure. And then the people of God, this is very interesting in verse 3, they do something, they do the right thing. Verse 3, the troops came to the camp, and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? I want to stop right there. Because they ask a good question. And you see in their question some really good theology that comes out of that. Why has the Lord defeated us? They have not gone and, say, and said, Why have the Philistines defeated us? Why have we lost this battle to these great, powerful Philistine armies? They understand rightly that they lost because the sovereign God of heaven and earth determined that they would lose this battle. And so they ask the right question. But right after that, they don't allow that question to sink in. They don't allow the question to do what it's meant to do for them. They then give an answer. Verse 3 again. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And they come up very quickly with a response. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Let us bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the question is, why has the Lord defeated us? What that question should do is humble them and cause them not to come up with a quick answer, but to cause them to repent and ask for forgiveness from the Lord. They've been living for years, hundreds of years perhaps, without truly seeking the Lord, without repenting of their sin. And here they go quickly right to God's furniture. They say the real problem that we have is we don't have the presence of God with us. So let's go get his throne. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a box. It's simply just a box. And in this box, they have, the Ten Commandments are held. Um, and it's meant to be a reminder to God's people uh, of the law that God gave. And on top of this box uh, that is coated in gold all the way around it are two cherubim, and they face each other, and this is meant to be God's throne. Um, for hundreds of years, this box had been behind a curtain in the temple. No one had seen it, but this was the box that went before them in uh, the wilderness uh, that they followed. It's the box that, they, uh, that circled Jericho with them. And it's the box that uh, showed forth God's presence. Well, what God's people do here is they say, the Lord has defeated us. What we need then is to go and get his throne. And if we have his throne, then we will win. So here's their plan. Here's their strategy. We are going to go and force God to submit to what we want. We're going to force God to do what we want. If we have his throne in our midst, he will not be able to lose the war because that would mean that he lost. And God will not lose because he will not suffer that kind of indignity. And their plan is to go and to take the Lord's box, to take his throne, to have it in their midst, and to simply say, because we have this, we're going to twist God's arm and we're going to make him do what we want. That is their plan. Now, here's that humor that comes out. Here's the thing that's funny about this in verse 4. 
So the people sent to Shiloh and brought them, brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Why is it funny? Here are people who say, here is the God of hosts. Here is Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. Here is the one who cannot be controlled, and we are going to control him by forcing him to give us this victory. We are going to make him bend to our will. The irony is thick. Samuel, when he's writing this, probably giggles and laughs a little bit at how stupid God's people are. If we just have God and we can force him to do what we want, then we will be okay. Well, this shows us something about their sickness, doesn't it? Uh, There's a sickness that causes them to believe that they can control the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords, the God of God, the King of kings. If you can control that God, guess what? He isn't God. And actually what, you've done, what they've then said is what they believe, actually, who is God? They believe that they are God. If you think that you can control God, then you actually believe that you are the one that's in control and that you are God and God submits to you. That is their sickness. They do not repent. They do not ask for forgiveness. They do not ask for the Lord's help. What they do is they say, no, God, you're going to bend to our will. That's their sickness. What about our sickness? I think we have the same problem. We are in no better position than these Israelites are. Because you and I here at the beginning of a new year say, if I could just be better, then everything's going to be okay. If I can just go to church more, if I can just read my Bible more, if I can just be better, then God will have to bless me. Then 2015 will have to be better than 2014. Their sickness is the same as ours because we actually believe that just by our actions that we can control God and we can force his hand and we can make things better. Our sickness is that we think we're in control. The story of the scripture, the story of the Bible is that God is the one who's in control of our lives. And our responsibility and our response to him is not to then try to curry his favor and to get him on our side Our response to him needs to be worship and praise and submission to his will. Now, what does that look like? It looks like what Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It looks like in the midst of really hard and tough circumstances, going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like what you're bringing me through, but I trust you. Because I know you're good. Because you would determine to have good things happen for me and for your people. Even in the midst of hard and tough circumstances. And the Israelites just lost 4,000 of their brothers. That's a lot. That's a lot of people to lose. And what did they do? They said, we're going to control God. That's their plan. What about the Philistines? What about their strategy? Point two, starting at verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise... Of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Um, So there's this great boost, there's this moral, um, this great boost of morale in the camp of the Israelites. 
the Ark of the Covenant has come in their midst. No one has seen this except for the high priest once a year. And so they see it. They're overcome by it. They're reminded of the walls of Jericho. They're reminded of what happens in Egypt. And they go, this is an amazing thing. God is with us now. We have forced his hand and we're going to win. And there's this great shout. And the Philistines, they respond by being afraid. And it's interesting. They say, okay, we've never seen anything like this before. We've heard about this. We've heard about what's happened with the Egyptians, how God struck them down and gave them all these plagues, all of these sorts of things. And that's, and so they say, okay, that's what's happened now. And what they think has happened is that the Israelites have then forced God's hand in this. He's forced them to now... Um, fight for them, and there's a possibility of them losing. In all pagan religion, all religion really outside of biblical Christianity, the whole goal is to get God on your side. Uh, Biblical Christianity says, though, that we don't get God on our side, but we are commanded to join his side. We submit to him. But the Philistines think that the Israelites have gotten a God on their side. So what's the problem according to the Philistines? What do they think? Well, they've got good information. They have heard the stories of the power uh, of this God. And they know that he has struck down the Egyptians. And they know that he can do the very same thing. But just like the Israelites, like we just saw, they have good information. They ask a good question. They don't then respond in the appropriate way. What should the Philistines do? They're afraid, and what should they do? Well, I personally think they should recognize the power that they're up against. And they should stop, lay down their arms, and either run away or decide to worship. But they do not do that. Here's what they decide. Look in verse 8. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Another question. Who can deliver us from their power? Well, they give their answer in verse 9. Take courage and be men, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews if they have been to you. Be men and fight. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? The Philistines say, we will deliver us from the hands of this mighty God. They decide to fight against this God. They don't repent. They have good information of his power, and yet it doesn't lead them to the right thing. It leads them to a bad solution, to fight. So their plan is to fight like men. It's interesting there. They don't say, they say the gods have come into the camp, and they don't then say, let's fight like gods. What do they say? Let's fight like men. This isn't just male braggadocious. This isn't anything like that. This is actually them saying men are better than gods. In all pagan stories, the gods submit to the will of men. And here the Philistines are saying we are better than the gods. We are going to fight like men. They don't just say it once, but they say it twice. Anytime you see that repetition in this short span of time, they're really trying to hammer this point home. Take courage and be men. And then at the end they say be men and fight. We are better than the gods, so we will fight with them. And so it reveals something of their sickness too. Perhaps you don't fall into this camp. Perhaps you're not a Philistines. But we are surrounded by people today who fight against God and say, I do not need God. On, I don't need to, to have God. I can fight against him. And that's their sickness as well. So we've seen the Israelites and their plan. We've seen the Philistines and their plan. Here in verses 11 and 12, we also see God's plan. The Lord's strategy for victory. And it's very interesting in verses 11 and 12. Look with me very quickly. I'm sorry, verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 
And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So what's God's plan? What do we learn about God's strategy? Well, we see something of the mess. We've seen it already that God's people want to control them. The Philistines want to fight against them. And what we would expect to happen, I think what we would expect to happen, is that God would not allow himself to, be, uh, to, to receive disgrace at the hands of the Philistines. And because it's his throne, because it's the place where his presence dwells, we would expect for him to go ahead and allow the Israelites to have victory, but that's not what happens. God does not then go for the Israelites and fight for them. What happens, 30,000 men die. So here they've experienced this loss. 34,000 men, if you count it up from the first battle now to the second one. An even greater defeat has happened. And even worse than that, the ark of God has been captured. God's presence has been captured. And it looks like God and the Israelites suffer a major defeat. The news would have gone out from this point on that the Israelites who had been so strong and so powerful had just been defeated by the Philistines. And guess what? Their God isn't that great. The news would have gone out and everyone in Israel would have said, but God was defeated here. And everyone in Philistia and everyone in Egypt would have said, but God isn't that great. And we see something of the strategy of God. God's people want to control him. And God says, I will not let you think that you can control me. I will suffer defeat at the hands of your enemies. I will be disgraced so that you can learn that you cannot control me. What's the problem according to Yahweh? What's a problem? What's the problem according to the Lord? The problem is that his people do not know him. The people do not know him. They just want to use him to get what they want. And the result is 30,000 men die. The ark is captured there. He allows defeat then to show, not that he's weak, but that he's strong. He allows defeat to show his immeasurable grace and greatness for his people. All through this story, we're just sitting here reading a story about a war, about battle, about defeat, and what's really happening. What's going on behind the scene? Behind the scene, God is winning the battle. God is winning the war. He allows his ark to be, uh, to be captured. And what happens in this battle? Hophni and Phinehas die. Why is that important? Well, a few chapters before, God said Hophni and Phinehas were going to die on the very same day because of their wickedness. Because they led people astray. Because it's because of their sin that people did not know him. God's grace and mercy to his people mean now that because Hophni and Phinehas are out of the way, Samuel is going to rise. And Samuel is going to call people not to use God, but to repent of their sin. He gets rid of Hophni and Phinehas. And what we're going to see next week in another very tragic story, uh, Eli is going to die and something else is going to happen. All of it to set up a great battle between Yahweh and Dagon. And again, some of the funniest passages in all the scripture. I can't wait to get there. Because they are hilarious where God goes up against Dagon, the great God of the Philistines. All of it is for God to show himself to be strong and great and mighty. And how does he do it? He does it by being defeated. And God's plan, defeat, becomes victory. It looks like a loss. It looks like God has suffered the worst kind of loss. He's been captured, but he hasn't because you cannot capture the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. You cannot control him. And he willingly let himself go and be captured by the Philistines. 
it sets up all of these great and wonderful things. It doesn't just set up the rise of Samuel, but it sets up the rise of Samuel. It sets up the rise of David. It sets up the rise of his son, Jesus Christ, who will reign on his throne forever and ever and ever. Even here in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Jesus Christ is shown to us. Because at the defeat of the Philistines, um, because the Philistines defeated Israelite and Yahweh here, it sets up the ultimate defeat of all the Philistines and its sin itself. Here, the defeat of God's people should point us to another defeat, and that is the defeat of Jesus Christ. On the cross, we see God himself willingly giving up his life, willingly going and suffering the worst kind of human indignity. And even worse than that, suffering, suffering God's own judgment for us. And it looks like weakness, it looks like humiliation, and it looks like defeat. But that weakness and humiliation and defeat is the only thing that points for us and means for us that we have forgiveness from God because God has taken away our sin. It means for us that our failure should, should drive us to Christ, not to ourselves. Um, as you go on this week and you remind yourself of your resolutions that you've broken already, that failure shouldn't drive you then to try harder and to do harder, but to remind you that you need Christ. That you can't do it on your own. You need him. It also should remind you that you cannot control God. You cannot control God. You cannot bend God to your will. You cannot get what you want by doing more things and being better. Christianity is not about you being better, but it's about Jesus Christ who was perfect for you. And then it also points us to what we're about to do in this table. As we come and take the Lord's Supper... We need to be reminded here, uh, what the Israelites were doing was they were trying to bend God by being uh, superstitious. They were trying to, um, to make God do what they wanted by doing something, getting his box, getting his throne in there to make God do what he wanted. That's what superstition is. On New Year's Day, probably all of us had uh, black-eyed peas and cabbage and all of those things. We all participated in those superstitions, I hope. You don't believe that any of that really does anything good for you. You cannot make God bless you by participating in those things. I did too, by the way. Don't worry, I did too. But it doesn't mean that God is going to bless us because we've participated in those things. This table is not superstition as well. Because we partake of this does not mean that we automatically have God's grace. It does not mean that we are blessed because we do this. We actually do this as a reminder to us of what Christ has already done for us. We do this meal, we partake of this meal because of the gift that we've already received through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things that I want you to understand, a lot of business gets contracted or, or done around a table. You have a business deal, uh, deal you have a dinner something that gets people together and you have a meal and then business gets done. Uh, what we're doing here is not a business transaction with God. We don't do this because we want God to give us something. We do this because God has given us the greatest gift in his son Jesus Christ already and it's a reminder to us of his great grace and that transforms this meal not into a transaction that needs to be done but into a family dinner where we gather as God's people, and he meets with us, and he communes with us. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding this, this meal even more. 
Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace and your mercy to your people. We thank you, Lord, for giving victory even through what looks like defeat. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to remind us of your grace and mercy today through this meal that we're about to partake of. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, would be very real to us, even as he really meets with us spiritually in this, in this meal. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.